0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Today we hit the thesis of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's our third out of three lessons on Paul's introduction, and this is the part where he tells us what the letter is about. In the original Greek of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul uses the word for to logically connect three statements. So let's read it, starting with verse 15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we can imagine the flow of thought by inserting questions to which Paul is providing an answer and I'm going to change the word for to the word because to just to help us get the logical flow Paul just commented in verse 15 I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome we, I, we might ask why Paul are you so eager to preach the gospel to we who are in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel why are you not ashamed of the gospel Paul Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why, Paul, is the gospel God's power of salvation? Well, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay, Paul, well, then how is God's righteousness revealed in the gospel? Well, if you have some time, I'll explain it to you and that's where paul that's what paul does for the rest of the letter he explains to us how the gospel of jesus christ reveals the righteous plan of god and is thus the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes so let's let's consider each phrase of the thesis individually and then at the end i really want to spend some time on this little quote that paul gives us from habakkuk so we start with i am not ashamed of the gospel I've heard the apologist Michael Ramsden come, out, come at this statement with a question. Um, what makes you ashamed of the gospel? Paul's not ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed? Have you ever felt shame and so have not spoken up about the gospel? Or you felt shame when you were speaking about the gospel? Why is it? What is it that brings us shame when we're speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And when we think about shame, shame, is, shame happens when you speak or act in such a way that people around you reject you, put you down, devalue you because of something you've said or because of something you, you've done. They laugh at you or they belittle you or they, they um, morally judge you. So you put yourself out there and then you're rejected. And that's, that brings this sense or this feeling of shame. So, how is? It, what are some ways or reasons that we feel shame um, in relationship to the gospel? Well, the first is intellectual shaming. You're going to tell me you really believe all this stuff: God, heaven, sin, hell. You actually believe there was a real Jesus, and that it matters that he did, died on. I mean, you can be a Christian, but but you don't don't you get that Jesus is really a metaphor? We don't have to r- really believe that some. Jewish guy lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. It doesn't matter that he died on a cross. It's just metaphorical. He's a symbol of love. That's what it's all about. No, no thinking, intelligent person really believes that all this happened or that there's a, a hell. I mean, the next thing you're going to be telling me is that you believe in a worldwide flood. You're so naive. Science, science has taken us past this primitive stuff. I mean, really, come on. That's intellectual shaming. And a significant element of society will try to shame you intellectually if you hold the truths of the gospel. Another another reason we, we feel shame is that we get shamed religiously. Wait a minute. Our family's been Christians for generations, and now you're telling me that you have this special personal relationship with Jesus that I don't have, and your dad doesn't have, and your grandfather doesn't have. It's just, it's just grace through faith. Who are you all of the sudden to figure out that everybody else is wrong? That your family, your society, people of all these other religions, that we, none of us get it. Why are you trying to be so holy? So you're, All of a sudden, you're reading your Bible, you're talking to Jesus, and you think you're better than everybody else. So there's there's a religious element of society, often coming out of family, that'll shame you when you begin to question the religious rituals and practices, assumptions, and behaviors that are accepted as the norm. When the gospel leads you to act differently, to believe differently religiously, then you can experience religious shaming. Who are you to be different Another type of shaming we can call moral shaming, and it comes in two versions. So you can, you can be shamed morally when you begin to try to live right, uh, to live according to how you understand the gospel, calling you to live. So when you come to Christ and your life changes, uh, your friends might not love it. And, and it's, it's really normal for them to try to shame you into your old behaviors or shame you into behaviors maybe you've never had, but they're, whoa, you're a virgin. Wow, you're suppressed. So why, why don't you just have a, why don't you chill out, have a drink, have a puff? Um, are we, what, are we not good enough for you anymore? You've found better friends. You hang out with your Christian friends and you can't hang out. What is one beer? What's one beer going to do to you? So there's a shaming of your gospel morals. You, you try to stand up and take a stand for Christ and you get shamed. Uh, There's another type of moral shaming that's even harder to deal with. Uh, This insists that your view of God actually makes God out to be ugly or unfair, unjust, unrighteous, unloving. And this can get to some of the really difficult questions. So if your God is so loving and he's just and he's all powerful, why does he let innocent little children suffer, die, have leukemia? God doesn't care about the children? Or here's another one. What about the person who's never heard of Jesus? You're telling me that, that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus, so all these people who haven't heard about Jesus, they're going to hell, right? So God locks out everybody who isn't a Christian. You're, God is that intolerant. Your view of God is, is, is ugly. So this shaming shames you for your gospel world view. And this is tough. This is where some of the really hard questions come up. But you're, you're being rejected because of your view of God, your view of people, and your view of salvation. Now, all, all of this kind of shaming, Paul's fully aware of. He's faced it all. He faced the intellectual shaming of philosophers in Athens. He faced religious shaming from his family and his countrymen. He faced moral shaming from the pagan culture around him that tolerates everything and every god the the deep the deep objections that call into question Paul's vision of god he's he's faced it all and he believes in a robust gospel. He believes that the gospel answers the intellectual questions, it answers the religious questions, and it answers the moral questions. And so he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, Paul's, Paul's sense of honor and shame doesn't come for the society around him. They're trying to put on him a feeling of shame for his gospel beliefs. But Paul knows that his honor comes from God. And the shame that worries Paul is the shame of being counted unrighteous when he stands before God. That's the judgment Paul cares about. And in in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, Paul's going to quote Isaiah saying, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul has found a way that he can stand before God on that day and not be put to shame. And that way is the gospel. And it's a future orientation. I I can't tell you that you will not be shamed for your gospel belief. I can tell you that you don't need to be ashamed for your gospel belief. I mean, friends, co-workers, family members, educators will try to shame you intellectually, religiously, morally for your belief in God, for your belief in Jesus Christ. But God will not shame you. Your life will be affirmed by God. And if you will trust in the gospel, you will not be put to shame. So Paul, fully out of his heart and conviction, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you you who are in Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes. Why is he not ashamed? Because he really believes that there is power in the gospel to save us. And he's, he's not saying here what we need saving from. But whatever it is, we'll get to it, but whatever it is, the gospel is God's power to do that saving. The gospel is not just words. The gospel is an unleashing of power. The gospel is not some philosophy made up by man. The gospel is an act of God that brings real healing into our brokenness. So most people can agree that things are not the way they ought to be. People are broken, lost, lonely, searching, unfulfilled, guilty, condemned. We know that inside that there's a problem and we need a real solution that recognizes the real problem and has real power to overcome that problem. The gospel is God's power for the salvation that we need. Paul adds in this phrase to further emphasis. First, this power of salvation comes to those who believe. Belief is a critical component for experiencing God's power of salvation. Secondly, belief is available universally. He says to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul is going to maintain these two truths throughout his argument, that that the gospel is applied to those who have faith, and it is available to be applied universally. Everybody can believe. So Paul's claim is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He's not explaining that claim yet. He's just setting up what his argument's going to be about. This is the thesis. We're going to have to wait to see how it unfolds. How does the power of God bring about salvation? He's got one more clarification to make, one more thing to add. The gospel brings about power for salvation by revealing the righteousness of God, for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. A lot of recent scholarly discussion has revolved around this phrase, righteousness of God. This is going to get a little detailed, but it's, it's worth it for right interpretation as we go through Romans. I want to give you four options for what the phrase righteousness of God could mean. First we ask, is the righteousness of God something that applies to God? Does God own it? Or is it something that applies to or belongs to a human be- being? And Paul's use here, you know, who does righteousness of God apply to? And if the righteousness of God applies to God, then we can ask a second question. Is it an action of God or is it an attribute of God? So righteousness of God could be a statement about God's character or virtue. The righteousness of God is his righteous. Character, and that righteous character is revealed in the gospel. And we're actually going to see this use in Paul's argument. Um, Opponents are going to accuse Paul of making God out to be unrighteous. Your gospel, Paul, is unfair. It shows God is unfaithful. Paul is going to argue that the gospel actually presents God as wholly righteous. So, in one sense, Paul's going to say the righteousness of God is something that applies to God and applies to his character to his nature. But then it's, it's also interesting to note um, how often in the prophets, the righteousness of God is depicted as action. It's, it's not something true of who God is, it's something true of what God does. And it's often connected um, in parallel context with the word salvation. For example, in Isaiah 56, 1, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. So he said there's some action, something is going to happen, and when that happens, that's the coming of my salvation, it's the revealing of my righteousness. So it's it's God is doing something that is righteousness. And you, if you want some other examples, you can check out Isaiah 51.5. Um, Isaiah 45, 21b-25 uses a lot of the language that's in the thesis, and I'll, and we're going to see it, we're going to see this kind of righteous action in Habakkuk that we discuss uh, in a little bit. So here, salvation and righteousness are actions of God that are about to be seen. God acts righteously in history to judge and to save. And we also see this in Romans, the death of Jesus on the cross is the righteous act by which God saves. So that's, that's if righteousness of God applies to God. But on the other hand, um, can righteousness of God be something that belongs to a person? And, and if it is, is is it is the righteousness of God a status that God gives to a person? Or is righteousness of God a virtue that's expressed by a person? So if, if righteousness is a status, then that means that the person has a righteous standing before God. When God looks at that person, he considers them to be righteous righteous. And that righteousness comes from God. That's why it's called the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of Michael. The source is God. God bestows righteous status. It comes from him. If, If righteousness of God is a virtue or a quality expressed by a person, then the righteousness of God is the type of righteousness approved of or defined by God, and then lived out by a human being. So that's not righteous status conferred by God, that's that's righteous life or righteous character. And this, this is the idea expressed, for example, in Deuteronomy 6.25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. In this sense, the righteousness of God applies to a human being who's living according to the righteousness defined by God. And we're going to see both this idea of righteousness of God as a status, but also righteousness of God as a practice lived out in Romans. And it's, it's just going to be very important that we get the order correct. And I, I may have just cheated. I just said that we see all four options two righteousness of gods that belong to God, and two righteousness of gods that belong to human beings. And I think all four senses are used by Paul in Romans. And we have to pay very close attention to the context to see which is which. Some scholars are going to say that this is really bad interpretation. They're going to insist that an argument can't stand if 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 the author changes the meaning or word of a phrase as he goes along. And I think that's a pretty fair principle in communication. I think that's the norm. When somebody's making an argument or communicating, they need to keep their terms consistent. But it's untrue to the way that authors actually write, that authors sometimes like to be clever. An author very well may employ one term with multiple meanings to make a concise argument, as long as that author clearly communicates as he goes. And I believe Paul's done this very carefully with great insight in regard to the term righteousness of God. So what what we're going to see is that God has manifested his righteous character through righteous action to provide a righteous status that brings about righteous behavior in those who believe. And it's all the righteousness of God. Let, Let me say that again so you get all four. God manifests his righteous character through righteous action, to provide a righteous status that brings about righteous behavior in those who believe. And we'll we'll test this interpretation of the thesis uh, as we go through Paul's argument. We're going to let Paul develop our understanding of how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's up to Paul. We're going to have to follow it through. One last thing we notice here is that Paul again connects God's action to faith, that the, it's it's from faith to faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So faith plays a role here. Some have pointed out that the word faith could mean, it could be translated faithfulness, and have suggested that, that this should be, um, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faith, meaning the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the faith of man. And that, that's an interesting interpretation. I'm I'm tempted to understand the phrase as as faith from beginning to end, the righteousness is experienced from faith to faith. It's all faith. But I, but I have to be honest that the the phrase is ambiguous enough here in the the thesis that that I'm not really comfortable trying too hard to interpret it. I'm okay. Just we'll just let it lie and we'll see how Paul brings faith or faithfulness into his argument. We'll see how it plays out. So then Paul concludes his thesis with this quote from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. And what Paul does here is really fantastic. And we need to take a closer look at this quote. So the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, Paul is not, Paul is not doing here what's called proof texting. He didn't search through the Old Testament to try to find some verse that had righteousness in it and faith in it, because that would really work in his thesis. You know, that's what we would do if we were writing a term paper or an essay on faith. And we we just need a good a good scripture. So then we we Google it and 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 find it and pull it out of context and just plug it in. That's proof texting, and that's that's bad use of the Bible. There's a lot more going on here. Paul's use of Habakkuk two four is importing the entire prophecy of Habakkuk into his thesis. He didn't just select any verse. He selected a key verse from a prophet whose theology lines up with the argument Paul is going to be making about the gospel. And so the people who knew the message of Habakkuk, when Paul quotes this, you don't just think of this one verse, it echoes the whole of what was going on in Habakkuk's life. And it's more like a hyperlink. You just click on this verse and the whole message pops up. When we look at Habakkuk, we're going to see two things. We see God justifying his plan of salvation to Habakkuk. This is the plan of salvation, Habakkuk, and this is why it's righteous. And we see that the right role of the righteous person is to trust God in his plan. No matter how crazy it sounds, trust God, believe in him, have faith. These are the two themes in Habakkuk. Paul does the same thing in the argument section of Romans. Paul is going to show us that God is just. He is righteous in his plan of salvation. And then Paul is going to tell us that the right role of the righteous person is when faced with this plan of salvation called the gospel is to trust God, have faith in the plan, have faith in the author of the plan. Habakkuk's only, it's only three chapters long. So it, let's do it. Let's, let's look at the the whole prophecy of, of Habakkuk. It's, it's not that hard to find in your Bible. Just go to Matthew and then go back four books and you'll, you'll be there. It's, it's a short prophecy. Um, it's also one of the, the easier prophecies to get into because there's, it's, it's kind of like wisdom literature. There's this back and forth going on between God and Habakkuk. And so we, we start um, with Habakkuk complaining to God or, or calling to God to do something about the wickedness in Judah. And so this is, this is a couple of generations after the northern kingdom has been destroyed and, and exiled for their wickedness by Assyria. And now there's, there's all this sin going on in Judah, and Habakkuk is, up as a, is risen up as a prophet, and he's, he's incensed, he's angry at Judah, and he's calling on God. So the first four verses, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, how long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out, violence, and, and you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists, and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted." So this is Habakkuk's condemnation on the nation of Judah, and God responds. So God's response is in verses 5 through 11, and it's not what Habakkuk wants to hear. So verse 5, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe if you were not told. Now that sounds good. It sounds like we're getting ready to get a good plan of salvation. Let's listen to that again. Be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly down like an equal eagle swooping to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and they heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Okay, God, Habakkuk's like, God, I'm just asking you for justice on Judah and your answer, your plan of salvation is to bring this wicked, powerful, violent nation, Babylon, to come and to wipe out Judah and to carry them off into exile. That's your plan, God. Habakkuk's not too pleased. So we get Habakkuk's response to God's plan of salvation now in verses 12 through 2, one. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, has appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? See, now he's talking, he's not talking about Judah, now he's talking about Babylon. How is it, God, that you can be silent when, yeah, Judah's bad, but when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Verse 14, Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans, Babylonians bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad, and they offer a sacrifice to their net, and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large, and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net, and continually slay nations without sparing? So Habakkuk describes the Babylonians, they're these fishermen that just come nation after nation with their net, and they gather up peoples and destroy them. And and even worse than that, they, they don't give praise to God, they give praise to their nets, to their own power, to their swords, to their chariots, to their armies, to their strategies, to their plans. The Babylonians praise themselves for their victories. So God is calling this sinful people to come and to deal justice out on Judah, but that people is arrogant and proud and rejects God even as they're doing it. This, You are holy, God. This cannot be the righteous plan. How can this be right? And so then Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and stand myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. That's two verse one. Habakkuk, he takes his stand and it reminds me of this. I, when I had little girls, I, there were those times where I would say, come, or I would say, do this. And that little, little person would look at me and would plant their feet solid and not move. They stood and waited to see what I would do. Here's Habakkuk. He's, God has said Babylonians are going to come. And Habakkuk says, I'm going up on the watchtower. I'm going onto the wall. And I'm going to plant my feet. And I'm going to stand. Because I don't believe, God, that you who are righteous can use an evil army to punish Judah. This is my answer. And I'm going to wait and see. He says, I'm going to wait and see how I might reply when I am reproved. So he's expecting God to reprove him for what he's just said. And then in chapter 2 verse 2, the Lord answers and says, "Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time; it hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it; for it will certainly come, it will not delay." God says, "This is my plan. You can write it down and you can give it to a messenger to run it to the armies." Because it's happening. It's coming. You wait for it. And in verse 4, here's our key verse. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk. Yeah, we know the Babylonians are proud. Are you proud? Do you stand in pride against my righteous plan of salvation? Or will you trust me? Will you stand on the rampart in faith trusting to see what i will do if you want to live with me if you want to live as righteous you trust me in my plan of salvation and then god god goes on to give a longer explanation of what is going to come on the babylonians that he he gave a hint god gave a hint in verse 11 of chapter 1 that his use of the Babylonians is not a, it's not a justification or a vindication of the actions of the Babylonians. That God is able to use the wicked to bring about good, but the wicked are still responsible for their wickedness. This is true of the Jewish religious leaders who handed Christ over for crucifixion. It's true of Pilate and Herod that Pilate, Herod, the religious leaders, they were all used by God to bring about his plan of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that plan was good. But those men are still held accountable for their evil behavior. So here here in the same way, Babylon is going to be used by God to bring about righteous punishment. But since they do not turn in faith, they do not yield to God. They do not accept the fact that they are a holy instrument and that God is really the one winning the battles for them. They don't accept that. That's And that's the hint that was in verse 11. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. Those whose strength is their God. God is not their God. Their own strength, their own might, that's their God. And so they're going to be held guilty for the wicked that they do. And that gets... That gets really described in chapter two, verse five, all the way through through the rest of the chapter through 220. I'm not going to go into the details in chapter two and how God holds Babylon account. It's, it's a series of five woes. So I'll just read the woes in two, verse six, say, woe to him who increases what is not his. And in verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. And verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk. And then the last woe is going to to have to do with the the idols. It's it's a a prophecy against or cursing against uh, the false religion of the Babylonians and really this this arrogance and this pride that rises out of mankind. It's that one of the root problems is uh, traditionally a a turning from God and a a making of of false gods to worship. So I'll read this whole woe. It's in verse 18 to 20. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a, dun- a dumb stone, arise, and that is your teacher. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside of it. And so this this picture of idolatry is these gods have been created, and man calls the gods to wake and to speak. Then you get this verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is going to speak. The idols, they're called to speak, um, but they're silent. They're dumb. They're powerless. But God is in his holy temple and God is going to speak. It's not God who's silent, it's let all the earth be silent before him. So mankind is silenced when the true God speaks. This last woe uh, makes a good transition into chapter 3. And what we have in chapter 3 is a vision of of a new faith perspective. And that Habakkuk before, when he considered God's plan to bring Babylon to destroy Judah, all he saw was wicked Babylon. But this whole vision describes the coming of God um, as, as a judge and as an avenger um, to, to punish Judah. So God, Habakkuk no longer sees the army of Babylon. He sees God. In verse 2, he says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I see you coming, Lord, to judge. I see your righteous wrath. Remember mercy. And then he describes the chariots and the um, the rage of the Lord coming. Uh, I'll skip ahead to verse twelve. In indignation you march through the earth. In anger you trample the nations. You did go forth for the salvation of your people and for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. And then we, we get to the end of the chapter. Uh, it's 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 a beautiful ending. It's, it was probably made most well-known from the, the book, um, Hind's Feet on High Places, which is quoted at the end. We we see Habakkuk now standing on the ramparts, and he's waiting for the Lord to come. And he's waiting in faith, and he believes that this is God's righteous judgment, but it doesn't make it easier. So this is, this is difficult faith. It's hard to trust God in what has to happen to Judah. So verse 16, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise who will invade us. That idea of waiting quietly takes us back to chapter 2 where Habakkuk was standing on the ramparts and God told him to wait. The righteous lives by faith. And so now we see faith in Habakkuk. And as he as he considers the incrementally increasing destruction of Judah, um, he's going to trust. So in verse seventeen, though the fig trees should not blossom, so there's no fruit on the trees, and there be no fruit on the vines, so that's the fruit's gone. But that's also wine, what you drink. Uh, though the yield of olive oil should fail, so olive oil to eat, but also to bring light. The fields produce no food. Not only is the fruit gone, but now the grain for bread, basic sustenance, is gone. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold. So that takes away meat, but it also takes away uh, the wool for clothing. And there be no cattle in the stalls. So again, meat, milk, but even the cattle helped us to work the land. So everything's gone. Verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. It's not just a a patient waiting, it's a joy in relationship with the God of his salvation. So yet I will exult or boast in the Lord. That word comes out three times in in Romans 5. Romans 5 is echoing Habakkuk here, that I, I stand in grace and I'm, I'm, not only am I not ashamed of the gospel, but I boast in my God and in Jesus Christ. We're in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. So God has lifted Habakkuk up above the destruction of Judah and the judgment of the wicked, and he's given him solid ground, a sure salvation where he stands by faith. Paul uses Habakkuk to forecast for us his program in Romans. Habakkuk was was given the righteous plan of God. This is the plan of salvation, Habakkuk. Do you receive it or do you stand in pride and reject it? Now Paul's gonna give us eleven chapters where he lays out God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's going to be countercultural. It's not going to be acceptable to the intellectual, and it's not going to be acceptable to the religious. It is radical grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the plan of salvation. Do you turn away and reject it? Or by faith, do you say, yes, that's what I'm staking my life on. That's my rock. That's where Paul wants to take you. He wants to give you this understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by the end, your heart will just be bursting, wanting to proclaim along with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for I see that it is the power of God for salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first and then all to the rest of us. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Just as Habakkuk said, the righteous man shall live by faith. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.